0: Welcome to the Michigan Policy Cast. I'm Sean Donito, and I'm Matt Hillard, and we're excited to be joining you this week. The date of this recording is March 17, 2017, at approximately 6:30 p.m. Now we're going to kick things off with the story that comes out of Michigan that is probably the one that has received the most national attention um, regarding the Flint water crisis. We can't talk about the Flint water crisis without really understanding what happens with emergency managers in the state of Michigan. Um, so this is a program that is unique to Michigan, started by Governor Rick Snyder, where basically he can appoint emergency managers that can supersede the authority of municipal level officials, like city council members. So this matters a lot to the story inside of Flint, because this the strategy that got Flint into the water crisis was um, a pretty typical Republican plan of pursuing cost-saving measures um, across multiple municipalities. Flint was obviously one of them. There was a budget crisis there. Um, So the most notable cost-saving measure was when the emergency manager appointed by Rick Snyder, Darnell Early, decided to switch water sources from Detroit water to Flint water. um, And also the pipe connecting Flint to Detroit's water for $3.9 million, um, Is something that he ended up selling. Um, So when he sold this pipe that connected Flint to Detroit water, um, he permanently cut off uh, Flint's access to Detroit's water, um, switching access to just the Flint River. Now, obviously, we all know that the Flint River has really high levels of pollution, really high levels of lead. Um, and they've just begun the process of replacing the water piping. And in 2017, uh, service line replacement program is estimated to cost up to $40 million, depending on the bids, for an estimated cost of $5,000 per home. Um, Matt, do you wanna tell us a little bit about where this funding is coming from?
1: Sure, so the funding for this program is coming from the Water Infrastructure Improvements for the Nation Act, which was approved by Congress and signed into law by President Obama in late 2016. So while this funding was signed into law in 2016, it is not until this week that those funds were formally awarded to Flint by the EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. So the goal of the EPA uh, through these funds is to improve Flint's water infrastructure as part of a larger goal of improving just more generally uh, the way that America stores and transfers water. Uh, So importantly, this fund must first pass through the State Department of Environmental Quality uh, and half of that money is earmarked, earmarked for replacing aging lead pipes, improving corrosion controls, and other just more general water system improvements. Yeah, and I think it's, so, you know, speaking to water quality and pollution across this
0: country, um, is, is Flint an edge case? Is, the, is it the norm that there are these
1: high levels of lead? How, how frequent is this problem? Right, so it appears to be that it is indeed the norm that these high levels of lead are present in a lot of urban water systems. So reporting based on data from the Pennsylvania Department of Health highlights 17 separate cities just within the state of Pennsylvania where 10% of children tested positive for lead exposure. And just to provide a little bit of context for what uh, lead exposure actually means, it's defined as five or more micrograms per deciliter of lead in the blood, which is the threshold the government uses to identify children with dangerously elevated blood lead levels. So it's you know important to keep in mind that these are 17 cities within one single state that had lead level exposure above which was experienced in Flint. And I right. think importantly, Flint gained a lot of national attention for the politics surrounding the crisis, uh, and it's equally as important to be focused on Flint and also on these cities across the country that have comparable lead levels, but that might not have been due to direct government action, but more entrenched inequalities in infrastructure systems that are really, you know, providing. A huge challenge to a lot of public health uh, experts and practitioners that care about the you know quality of health of our children.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in other news, out of the state of uh, California, out of my home state, uh, Trump approved national dis- natural disaster declaration uh, in response to some flooding that California had in January. Uh, the declaration makes federal funding available to the state. Um, so this was this is standard practice it's worth acknowledging um, that it, it was it, every president basically would have done this but it was in his discretion to withhold these funds and I was personally worried that this would be used as a cudgel against California for you know pushing back on some policies regarding immigration and the environment um, So like I said this is standard practice but, it wouldn't have—it would have been unprecedented for him not to give that funding, but it wouldn't have been surprising. Um, so yeah, we just—that's our—that's <laughs> our weekly nod to Trump for for doing something that's vaguely presidential. Um,
1: <laughs> low bar.
0: <laughs> low bar. <laughs> in, in other news, uh, so we got introduced to the budget director for Donald Trump, Mick Mulvaney, this week uh, in Thursday's press briefing. Uh, He started off with kind of a playful exchange with the New York Times, where he got them in trouble for getting his kids' gender wrong. Um, He then gave them the first question, which the New York Times did not waste. Uh, They definitely asked a very difficult question about Trump's campaign promise to eliminate $20 trillion of national debt in eight years. The New York York Times reporter, uh, their question was basically like, is this still happening? Um, And of course the question was glossed over, but I thought that that playful yet intense exchange and that opportunity being utilized by the New York Times was uh, was amusing at the very least. Um, Matt, do you want to tell us a little bit about what else is inside of uh, inside of Donald Trump's budget plans?
1: Sure. So different than the, the lack of follow-through in this promise to eliminate $20 trillion of national debt in eight years, there's one campaign promise that Donald Trump seems to be sticking to, and that is his promise to build a border wall along the US-Mexico border. So President Donald Trump's administration submitted a supplemental budget request to Congress on Thursday, requesting $3 billion to be tacked on to the Department of Homeland Security appropriation bill for Trump's proposed border wall and implementation of executive orders. Mm. So this money is expected to be used for hiring border and ICE agents and expanding detention and deportation funding. Yeah,
0: it's, it's sorry to interrupt, but it's just it's interesting that he's sneaking this into a, an appropriations bill, which right. is kind of a, a must-pass bill from the way I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this funding is, is likely to get voted on.
1: Absolutely, and it, it's uh, important to note as well that this $3 billion <coughs> is only a fraction of what the border wall's estimated cost uh, is projected to be. Uh, So, uh, to try to allocate more funds towards uh, this campaign promise, the 2018 budget proposal has an additional $2.6 billion earmarked for wall construction. Uh, And the OMB director, Mick Mulvaney, has said that the president would request a total of $4.1 billion between fiscal years 2017 and 2018 for the wall. So it sort of begs the question, if there is a campaign promise to eliminate $20 trillion in national debt, is the way to do that earmarking billions of dollars to build a border wall along the uh, US-Mexico border? Yeah, and
0: it's, you know, Donald Trump's budget plan has obviously been a really big part of the news cycle. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of places where he's adding money and quite a few places where he's taking money out. Um, Matt, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, some of those cuts and additions?
1: Right, so we certainly won't go through uh, the specifics and all cuts uh, and expansions. But one thing that, you know, Sean and I both feel very strongly about is these two you know, countervailing effects of increasing spending on defense and cutting the State Department budget. So in Donald Trump's first official budget document, uh, there represents a $52 billion increase in defense spending, while also cutting the State Department budget by 28%. So this really, you know, gets at the heart of moving away from diplomacy and other actions that might be uh, different than escalation and violence and military action and towards, you know, just solving international conflicts with bullets. Uh, and really, just as a quick aside, so since World War II, the, you know, U.S. international agenda has basically been shaped by two schools of thought. One is that it's the responsibility of the U.S. to revive and secure a global economic order and that's sort of referred to as the hamiltonian school of thought and then we have the wilsonian school of thought which again states that it is the responsibility of the u.s to play a major role in the international environment and revive and secure a global order but that order instead of being based on economic values be based on the values of human rights democratic government governance and rule of law but now so we have you know these two Competing orders. Competing right. schools of thought, but we now see in this post-Trump America an older school of thought that has really re-emerged and has been reflected in this budget proposal of increased defense spending and cutting uh, State Department and diplomacy spending. Uh, yeah. And this sort of were has been referred to as a Jacksonian sort of school of thought, right. and it essentially is uh, this idea of American exceptionalism uh, that you know both Hamiltonians and Wilsonians still um, retain that the U.S. has a privileged place in the international community, but it's really rooted in the country's singular commitment to equality and dignity of individual American citizens. So instead of outward facing, it's very inward facing and ensuring that You know, both economic and physical security of Americans are ensured at home, first and foremost.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting during the press conference because Mulvaney got asked a question about, uh, you know, the critical cuts to the United Nations and the impact that they would have for um, human rights and different efforts to help people uh, impoverished in the developing world. Mm -hmm. And he, he made very clear that it should be no surprise to Americans that. We're pursuing an America First agenda, and the, prioritized, the priorities of international um, refugees and marginalized populations are going to get sidelined at this time.
1: Absolutely, uh, and just to bring the budget full circle into sort of a second point that uh, was somewhat concerning to see is a 31 percent cut in the EPA budget. from 8.2 billion dollars to 5.7 billion dollars with the additional reduction of 18 percent to the national institute for health as well as similar medical and scientific research departments so it seems like there's this perverse intent to defund studies that might corroborate findings of a changing climate while also loosening regulations intending to fight climate change So it's really saying that, you know, let's ignore this problem and by ignoring the problem and by not using science to attempt to uh, enrich our understanding of the problem, then we don't have to devote resources to trying to fight it because we're not going to fight a problem that we are convinced doesn't exist. Right.
0: And uh, another interesting cut was, uh, so from... This is from foreign policy magazine. Uh, State Department staffers have been instructed to see cuts in excess of 50% for US funding to UN programs. So we previously alluded to those um, signaling an unprecedented retreat from Donald Trump's administration for international operations, like keeping the peace, providing vaccines for children, monitoring rogue nuclear weapons um, and promoting peace talks from Syria to Yemen, um, according to multiple different sources um so in other diplomacy news uh trump's meeting today actually with angela merkel is supposed to discuss the importance of vocational work and we we want to take a minute to acknowledge that Vocational work is something that's sort of been sidelined in the United States in favor of, you know, four-year colleges and universities. Um, and there's there's a lot of really interesting advocacy work that tries to encourage people to go back into, you know, these hard labor jobs, which are oftentimes moving up the value chain and becoming more high-skilled and more technical, higher income. Um, but it could be an indication of what Trump's economic agenda forecasts. Um, and and getting cues from Germany could be a good thing here because. Their 4% unemployment rate, and they're very robust middle class. Um, yeah, what, what else is Trump trying to bring back in, in terms of the, the economic agenda that
1: he's pursuing, Matt? Right, so to increase the importance of these vocational uh, training programs, there needs to be jobs for these vocational um, trainees to fill. So Trump's basic economic agenda is trying to bring those jobs back, particularly in the manufacturing sector. So if you'll forgive the small amount of, you know, macroeconomic wonkery, uh, basically, you know, Trump's ec- economic agenda includes the following. A lower corporate tax rate, which is currently at 35%, which is pretty high in comparison to uh, other OECD countries. uh less burdensome regulatory environment, though that has to beg the question, is this less burdensome regulatory environment at the expense of our Physical environment, right? Um, expanded domestic energy production, and a, a big uh, sort of example of this that many right-leaning economists look to are, is the fact that American firms are, you know, increasingly more efficiently extracting gas, uh, but due to regulation, really face barriers in liquefying the extracted gas to then send abroad. So if you wow. lift those regulations. Um, which again, you know, has a lot of questions about environmental implications. But if you were to lift those regulations, you could imagine a situation where it would be easier to send gas abroad and potentially, you know, lower some trade deficits. Uh, and then finally, Donald Trump really ran on this idea of being an effective deal maker, and a big part of his economic agenda is to negotiate better trade deals that give companies a quote unquote fair chance to compete. So the U.S., for example, faces huge restrictions and roadblocks when trying to do business in China, which has certainly increased the, uh, the trade deficit between the U.S. and China, and is something that Trump really wants to spend a concerted amount of effort in uh, trying to alleviate some of those restrictions. Right, yeah, it's, it's interesting hearing a, a snapshot of what some of the priorities
0: are at this administration. Um, and in order to uh, measure public support or even just kinda highlight public support, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump has been, so he's, whether or not it's him or the GOP, they've been, they've been releasing some public opinion surveys. Um, and these are hosted on the GOP's website um, distributed across the country. And it's it's worth acknowledging what's inside some of these polls. So one of the most recent ones was a mainstream media accountability survey, um, wh- whose name already kind of primes what it's trying to do, um, trying to highlight the flaws in the media. Mm-hmm. And I there, there are a couple things that I have to say about this. As somebody who researches survey design and, and questionnaires, um, there's There's a lot of selection bias in in the people that he tries to get to take these polls. Um, Basically, what happened the first time he distributed the survey was he didn't like the responses, um, so he just reissued the survey. (laughs) He he basically said that liberals tried to hijack the results of the survey, and because of that, uh, he was reissuing the survey. So that's an example of kind of choosing your sample. Um, and there's there's a lot of really interesting priming effects here too, so just reading a couple questions off the survey. Um, number 14 is, do you believe that contrary to what the media says, raising taxes does not create jobs? <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's just, it's survey design 101 that you don't want to prime the person you are asking a direct question. You want to keep them as... Uh, unbiased and objective as possible and it's interesting to what extent that has been deprioritized by this uh, administration
1: and its collecting of data. Yeah, it can't help but bring up sort of uh, a tweet that I think was issued by Trump a month ago in which he stated that uh, all polls are fake unless they show positive uh, results of me and my administration right and this idea that all no data is correct unless it corroborates his pre-existing beliefs
0: yep and uh it's it's important to acknowledge trump's relationship with this media so now we want to talk about obamacare because that's something that public opinion research has been especially interesting on too Um, Obamacare, as we know, is relatively unpopular, um, but it actually surpassed 50% approval for the first time in history very recently, um, now that it's on the chopping block. Uh, Furthermore, according to research by the Kaiser Family Foundation, um, 84% of Americans want to keep the Medicare expansion that's part of Obamacare. Um, The tracking poll also showed that Obamacare is more popular than it has been since 2010. 48% 48% viewed the law favorably, which is a plurality of Americans, and 41% disapproved. Now, this is some of the most interesting research that um, I've gotten to discuss in some of my classes. Um, the Pew Research Center put out data that wholly a third of Americans did not know that Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act are the same thing. Right. Um, and approval ratings were considerably higher for the Affordable Care Act than Obamacare. Now. As many of us know, those are indeed the same thing. And it just sort of goes to show what implicit biases come with uh, people's sort of preconceptions about Obama and their actual responses to his policy solutions.
1: Right. And I think too, highlighting what an effective campaign the Republican Party was able to deliver in terms of really framing this landmark legislation around a singular political identity that might have been unpopular for a lot of people.
0: Right. A very, very successful misinformation campaign. I think it was the PolitiFact lie of the year that uh, death panels. Wow. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, Okay. So we're going to jump into Top of Mind now. Um, And this week we're celebrating International Women's Day. So Matt and I both chose a quote from one of our favorite world leaders, about women and what they are doing to support women on International Women's Day. So mine is from none other than Vladimir Putin. Um, <laughs> this is the quote: uh, "We will do our utmost to surround our dear women with care and attention, so that they can smile more often." Um, there's there's a lot in this quote, and it's it's not it's not even really out of context. Um, John Oliver's commentary was spot on that. Women like nothing more than to be surrounded and told to smile more often, obviously. Um, but these are the statements we are hearing from our world leaders. It's just worth worth acknowledging that casual misogyny is now a, a very real thing we are contending with leaders from the Philippines to Russia to maybe the United States. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, that. what do you got for us? Right, so doubling down on this message, uh, and not to be outdone, the Brazilian president, Michel Temer, stated, today, women participate strongly in the economy too. Nobody is more capable of pointing out changes in supermarket prices better than women. So oh, again, this casual misogyny, and it really, what is so striking is it comes from a, sincere belief that this <laughs> is true, that, that this is an idea that the Brazilian president thinks is flattering yeah. to women, that, that is, it, it isn't a playful gesture or a coded statement, it's something that he sincerely believes is true. No, they, uh, these
0: world leaders obviously have uh, a lot of room for becoming woke, wow. so to speak. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, Join us again next week. I'm Sean Donito. And I'm Matt Hillard.